um, are going to be looking at John chapter 7 this morning. If you've got your Bibles, you can turn there. I'm going to read uh, the portion of Scripture here in just a moment, and we'll have it on the screen. But if you've got your Bibles, I'd love for you to have them in front of you. Um, so I'm going <clears> to <throat> do the first part of John chapter 7 this morning to kind of tell you where we are. And then um, next week, we're going to do four weeks where we um, prepare for Christmas, kind of an Advent series. Advent means uh, coming, and so it's as we remember the first coming of Jesus and we look forward to the second coming of Jesus, we'll spend a few weeks looking at the uh, stories uh, related to Christmas and preparing our hearts uh, for, for this season. We have a, an Advent devotional that we want you uh, to take. Uh, it's, it's free to you, um, but it will allow you over the next uh, uh, weeks, if you want to do this in your um, time with the Lord, if you want to do this as a family, it'll help, um, it'll help orient you. It'll, it'll be one of those, hopefully like this respite in the middle of all the chaos and busyness of Christmas. I don't want you to go through the season and have missed the opportunity to worship our Savior. And so, if this helps, we would certainly love for you to have that. It's, um, it was well done. Okay, so here, here's what I'm going to do. Um, I'm going to read from John 7, and uh, I'm going to read the first 24 verses, and we'll look at how John's going to give us a picture of unbelief, okay? So, John chapter 7, beginning of verse 1. Here is how John records this scene. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go into Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now, the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Well, Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time's always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it, that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to the, up to the feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast, saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people, while some said, he is a good man. Others said, no, he's leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he's never studied? So the, Jesus answered them, My teaching's not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet not one of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? And the crowd answered, You have a demon. Who's seeking to kill you? And Jesus answered them, 
I did one deed, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it was from Moses, but from his fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Well, this is the word of the Lord. If you would bow with me in a word of prayer. Father, we've come this morning to look at your word, um, come to worship you as we sing, and we have come to worship you as we fellowship with one another, and we come to worship you this morning, Father, as we hear from you in your word. And so I pray you would open our minds and our hearts. I pray, Father, you'd guard my mouth and my mind that I wouldn't say anything that does not accord with your word. Father, I pray that your word would have its effect on us, that we would see your son Jesus exalted, we would see the beauty of your glory this morning. But only you can do that in us, we can't do that ourselves. And so we ask that your spirit would open our eyes and our hearts and our minds to what you have for us. We pray this the only way we can, in the name of your son Jesus and by the power of your spirit. Amen. Well, John, uh, the gospel writer, is writing this gospel, this, this uh, story, this history of Jesus, and he tells us in John chapter 20 the reason that he's writing it. And, and the reason that he's writing it in John chapter 20 is so that we will believe that Jesus is who he said he is, and by believing in him, we would have eternal life. And that what he is portraying to us about Jesus is that Jesus is the eternal Son of God. That he has always been. There was no beginning. In fact, he is the word that was there at creation. And this word has become flesh and has dwelt among us. And, and he's taken on humanity. He is the fulfillment of everything that God had designed as, uh, in bringing salvation to mankind. And he shows up fulfilling all that God had promised. And yet, he's going to say to us at the beginning, he's going to come to his own and his own, they won't recognize him. His own won't receive him. He's going to come as a light in the darkness, but people love the darkness more than the light. And there will be people that he calls, people that he chooses, people that come alongside of him as disciples, people that his father gives him along the way in his ministry, all leading up to the point that he came in the flesh for, and that is to not only have lived a perfect life, but to die a death that we deserve. The one who knew no sin will become sin. He'll be nailed to a cross. He will die with our sin. And our belief in Him, our trust in Him, means that He died for our sin. He took our sin, and in turn, while He was clothed in our sin, we become clothed in His perfection. And so John is leading us to the place of believing in this. But along the way, what John is doing is he's showing us, listen, this is such a, a, a it's a hard book. So we, we love John. John writes in some of the most simple language, but most profound truths. 
And you would think if you were going to sit down and you were going to write a story about Jesus and your, and your purpose was that you wanted people to believe at the end of it, you, you would make sure you did not include anything controversial, anything hard to understand. You'd make it simple. You, I mean, you, you would make it so that every time you finish reading, you'd feel good about yourself. At least that's how we'd do it. But consistently, over and over again, John is recording this ministry of Jesus, and the ministry of Jesus continues to meet with these confrontations. In fact, what you you see is, while Jesus is wildly popular at the beginning, and you can see from the other Gospels where Jesus does lots of miracles and healing the the blind and the sick and the lame, and and not only feeds 5,000, but we also see that he feeds 4,000, but John doesn't include that. And he, and he does these amazing things and these amazing teachings. And there's this massive following of Jesus. John hints at the massive following. And then as soon as Jesus is at the height, John now turns the story to the teachings of Jesus that begin to thin out the crowds. People were attracted to Jesus because they could come and they could, they could have bread because he, you know, he, he multiplied these five loaves into, you know, to, to feed more than 5,000 or 10,000 or 15,000. They came to him based on the expectations they had for a man with his power. I mean, if this, really, if this man really has his power, then, man, I've got some plans for him. And if he really is the Messiah then let's get on with this. Let's kick Rome out of Israel. Let's get out from under the tyranny. Let's get on with the life that we've been hoping for and we believe that God's promised us. And so everybody we see, as John records this, has an agenda for Jesus, has an idea about who Jesus should be and what Jesus should do. And consistently, Jesus begins to teach into those expectations and into those ideas. And every time he does, you know what, you know what happens? He offends his hearers. In fact, you looked last week as Fritz taught at the end of chapter 6, which he did a fantastic job. If you weren't here, I'd encourage you to go to the podcast and listen to it. But the, but the crowds, they, they started to go away. They'd say, well, well this is hard teaching. Who, who, can, uh, who, who can bear this kind of teaching? This isn't what we, were, what we signed on for. And so this morning, it, we're going to continue with that theme. And, and John's going to give us some hard words of Jesus. And I think in this, if he's, he wants us, he wants to lead us to a place where we believe, he's going to show us three kinds of unbelief this morning in these 24 verses. The first is an unbelief of familiarity, is the way I'd describe it. The second is an unbelief of what I'd call popular opinion. And the third is an unbelief from being threatened. And so I want you to see these. So beginning back in verse 1, it tells us the time period. So after this, Jesus was in Galilee. And it means that after the events of chapter 6, and you go back, and we were at a Passover feast in Uh, at the time of the Passover in Jerusalem. Now, he's going to fast forward the story six months. And we know that because now it is the time of the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. 
And in the history of the Jewish festival cycle, there are three major festivals, three major feasts that every male that was a Jew that could travel to Jerusalem, and you had a really good excuse not to, but you would go to Jerusalem, you would pilgrimage there for these three feasts. The first was Passover. This happened somewhere in the end of March, 1st of April. It's when we celebrate Easter. Then you had what was called the Feast of Weeks, and that took place seven weeks after the Passover. And it was 50 days, and it was the Feast of Weeks. We know it in the New Testament as the day of Pentecost. And then in the fall, after the um, grain harvest, and then through the summer, your, your vines and uh, your grapes and your fruits and your olives and those sorts of things, you harvested those, you came to the last feast, which culminated the end of the year. It was called the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. And the fulfillment of that one in the, in the church history has yet to come, actually. It'll be, it'll be at the time when Jesus reigns. And so this Feast of Booths was a commemoration. They, it lasted for seven days. They feasted, uh, they drank wine, they would celebrate, they would show up at the temple and they would have a palm branch in one hand, according to Leviticus 23, as God describes it, and you'd have a piece of citrus fruit or some olives or, or something in the other hand, and you would stand before the temple and you would praise God, praise God, praise God for His blessings. It was the most holy of the feasts. It was the most celebrated, joyous of all the feasts. It was the remembering of God's provision as their ancestors wandered in the wilderness for 40 years and God provided them in Exodus 16 water, water for millions that came from a rock. In 17, He institutes manna from heaven. He guides them by a cloud by day and a fire by night. And even in the 40 years, even though they're there because of their unbelief, God never leaves them. He never forsakes them. He feeds them. He cares for them. He always leads them. And so they celebrate it and they remember it. There were two things, and we'll talk about it again when we come back to the passage, but two things. Uh, traditions or, or two ceremonies they performed during it. One was, was a, a, a water drawing ceremony. They would go down to the spring, they would draw the water, they would bring it up, they would pour it out. It remembered the time that God brought water from the rock and He always provided for them. The other one was a candle lighting ceremony, remembering that He was always guiding them, always leading them. Jesus in this passage and in the next will say, or this chapter and the next, he will say, all that are thirsty, come to me. Referencing that, and then he'll say, I am the light of the world. Referencing that as well. And so, John's giving us this time. It's been six months. Um, Jesus is in Galilee. He has not gone south to Judea because the Judean Jews... The religious leaders down there, they were seeking to kill him. They were seeking to kill him because the last time he was there, he healed a man on the Sabbath, and it made him mad, and then they confronted him, and then he made him more mad by saying, oh, by the way, I'm God. And they've been looking for him to come back. 
So he stayed up north. He stayed in Galilee. The other gospels record all of the events that Jesus was doing during this time. And now it's time for the Feast of the Booths. Six months after the last time he was there and six months before he will end up going to the cross. John here has now begun his ascent to the cross. And his brothers come to him. We know that Jesus had four brothers. The um, history of Mary is that she was visited by the Holy Spirit. She was a virgin. Um, There was an immaculate conception that the Spirit of God um, conceives in this virgin Mary, the Son of God, God the Father is, is uh, the, the father, and Mary is the mother, and um, there is this mysterious thing that, that happened, and this virgin becomes pregnant with a child, and while she's engaged to a man named Joseph, Joseph then marries her. After Jesus is born, then they have more children. They have other children. They have four, at least four brothers Jesus has, and some sisters we find out in Matthew chapter 13. So here we're introduced to the brothers in John's gospel. And it says, so his brothers said to him, leave here. Leave Galilee. Leave this rural area. Leave the north and go down to Judea. Go to where Jerusalem is. That your disciples, the ones down there, might be able to see the works you're doing. For nobody works in secret if, uh, to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. So you've you got to think about this. His brothers have come to Jesus, and, and they're, I mean, these are, can you, imagine, can you imagine if Jesus was your older brother? I mean, I'm an older brother, I get it. We're the favorites. Um, in the eyes of all around us, we're perfect, you know, I mean, I get all that. But Jesus actually was perfect. You know what I mean? So, at Thanksgiving time, we, we don't do it anymore, thankfully. We do not do this anymore. But there were years in which my brother, my younger brother, my 10-year younger brother, who, like, he got the deep end of the gene pool, I'm the shallow end. He's like six foot, he's an athlete, he's all this stuff. You know, but he'd always challenge me, kind of the big brother challenge, like, you know, I think I can take you this year. I'm like, no, you can't take me this year. Big brothers always win. So we would. We'd get out in the front yard or the backyard, and we'd wrestle to the ground. And, you know, I got a good two minutes in me, okay? Um, And I have to pin him or hurt him in two minutes, or I actually can't keep going. I mean, that was how it went. So fortunately, we don't do that anymore. But can you imagine picking a fight with Jesus? Come on, we're going to wrestle. We're going to see. We're just going to see, you know, and and Jesus like, oh, okay, well, that's cute. And then... um, you know, he could strike them dead if he wanted with a word. But they're, they're, they're speaking to him. And, and so, so I want you to see this. This is such a fascinating thing in John's gospel here. They've grown up with him. They know all about him. There are things that were recognizable about him, I am sure. Not to mention the stories that his mother told, but... Here they are, and I think that we see they're goading him. They're saying, look, okay, okay, Mr. Jesus, Mr. Big Deal. You've been doing all these things, and it's not that they don't believe in his miracles. They believe he can do miracles. They're just saying, listen, if you're such a big deal, why don't you go down to Jerusalem? Why don't you go do them at the big show down there? 
Because we've been following these things, and you've done some stuff, and then you start, you open your mouth, and you start teaching, and everybody leaves, and so you're, you're doing it the, all the wrong way, Jesus. Go to Jerusalem, do something spectacular, people will love you again. Now, why they say this, we aren't entirely sure, except that John gives us a parenthetical phrase in verse 5, and look what it says. For not even his brothers believed in him. Why were they saying, Jesus, go down there and do this? And I think John's telling us the reason they were saying that was because they didn't believe in him. Well, what didn't they believe? You know, Matthew 13 tells us the names of the brothers. You have uh, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas. After the resurrection, two of those will become biblical writers, James and Judas, or Jude. Here, though, we see they don't believe. In, Matthew, in Mark chapter 3, we find when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he's out of his mind. He comes, he begins to teach, he does his thing, and they're like, well, wait a minute. You, you've got this all wrong, Jesus. This isn't why you're here. You're not doing what you're supposed to do. They don't believe in him. Their motive is go make a big deal, Jesus. Go, go make a big splash. Go, go down there and let's start this revolt. You came to free us from the tyranny of Rome. It is time to get on with it. Or maybe it was just, hey, listen, you go down there, you do some stuff, we'll be standing around, we'll be able to go. Hey, that's my brother. I taught him everything he knows. But the real reason is that they did not believe. You know, it's interesting. Um, I think they don't, what they don't believe is they don't, they, they believe in miracles. But their expectation of who Jesus is and what he ought to be is different than who Jesus is and what he, is, what he came to do. See, Jesus' response to them is telling. He says, listen, my time has not yet come, but your time's always here. The world can't hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to the feast yet. I, I'm not going up the way you want me to or in the time you want me to, for my time has not fully come yet. Here's the deal. He's saying to his brothers, look, my, my life... Who I am is aligned with God's will. And God's timing of God's will. God's will, God's way. That's what I'm about. And for the brothers, all the time is the same for them. Their life is not in sync with the will of God. It, their life, they don't believe. Their life is apart from faith. And when you live a life apart from faith, all time is the same actually. One minute is the same as the next, is the next hour, is the next day. It's all the same if you're out of sync with the will of God. See, Psalm 37, 23 says this. The steps, and it's speaking the steps of a righteous man who walk with the Lord. Those steps are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. 
See, once you give your life to Christ, you trust in him. You, you have the Lord's leading. God leads you. And so sometimes it's so clear. I mean, you know it. You know how God's leading you. And sometimes, you know, it's just it's this sense you have. And you, then you seek counsel and you step in on faith. Sometimes <clears throat> you can find yourself lost. You know, you're not sure. You're looking around. You really, you're desperate. You're groping. What is God doing here? So by faith, you step forward the best way you know how from the best counsel that you've gotten. And then you end up looking back on your life. You look back at a decision or a season in life. And then you see, oh, I see God's hand so clearly. He was so at work then. And I didn't even see it then. Now I look back and I, and I see it so clearly. And it was faith and just doing the next right thing and, and praying. And, and well, you didn't see it at the time. God was so clearly there. Sometimes being in sync with God, being a believer, walking in faith, some, sometimes, sometimes you step out of that and you blow it. And yet you look back and you see how God redeemed it. You know, you, look, you say with Joseph, listen, what, what was meant for evil, God meant for good. He turned that into good. Because see, Psalm 37 goes on to say, not only are your steps established, but it says, though he fall, he'll not be cast away. The Lord upholds him. See, when a person knows and walks with the Lord, there's this order, there's this progression. The Lord superintends a person's life and there's purpose apart from the Lord. Apart from walking by faith with the God that created you, you don't have a sense of that purpose in your life that you were created for, the, the peace that comes from walking with God, a contentment. Like Paul says, I'm content in all things. He says, he says, I'm not speaking of being in need, for I've learned whatever situation I'm in to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and the secret of facing hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And see, so the reason here, he says to the brothers, Isn't all time's the same for you. You go up anytime. Is because they're in sync with the world. When you walk with God by faith, you follow Jesus, you put yourself out of sync with the world. You feel the struggle against the streams of the world whether it's materialism or significance or how the world defines success or how the world defines identity or usefulness or, or what matters. I mean, you, you feel it. I mean, so, so there's, you know, there's stuff. There's materialism out there. And you may think, you know what, I like stuff. Stuff is cool. It's, it's really great. I like having new stuff. But, you know, at the end of the day, stuff isn't all what it's cracked up to be. And I don't know that I'm buying everything the world is selling about having all that. I don't, I don't feel right about spending my energies and my resources and pursuing these things or this kinds of success. And 
and you feel yourself out of sync with the world and, 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 and what the world says, look, this is useful. This is how usefulness is defined. And you look and you go, well, I, don't, I don't know if that's how I would define usefulness. I'm, I'm seeing value in things the world wants to throw away and discard. So that's how you know you're walking in sync with God and not in sync with the world. See, the, the brothers had this problem. They had a familiarity with Jesus. So they grew up with him. This is a lot like people that live in the South, live in Tyler, Texas, you know, in the Bible Belt. We grow up with Jesus. We know all about Jesus. We saw all the flannel graphs and all the Veggie Tale movies. And then we even watched the Passion of the Christ. We know all about him, right? They did too. But their unbelief comes from their familiarity. And it is this gap between what you expect of Jesus, okay? What you expect to encounter of Jesus, what you expect, expect to read about Jesus in the Scriptures, how you expect Him to be. And there's this gap between how you expect Jesus to be and then when you really encounter Jesus. And you read something like John's Gospel, and you think, well, that makes me uncomfortable. I don't really like that. Or you read something in the Old Testament that God has revealed about himself, and you say, well, I don't like that. This is not what I expected. Or, or you see the face of Jesus in your life through, through circumstances or how he might lead you or into suffering or into places you would never choose to go in a million years. And you think, well, that can't be right. And so what happens is, is that when we have this relationship with Jesus based on familiarity, we ignore what we don't understand. That's one of the responses. And in doing so, you say, well, I don't, I don't know. I, I mean, I just don't understand this. So I'm just going to ignore it. And I'm going to say things like, well, that, that's not Jesus. I mean, that, that's, I mean, I don't know what that is, but that's not him. And so I'm... I'm just not going to think about that. I'm going to ignore it. What happens is when you do that, whether it is through God's word, whether it is through the situations in your life, you think, well, that couldn't be Jesus, and Jesus never be part of that. Yet Jesus says, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. The spirit of Jesus dwells inside of you as a believer. You are never away from him. But when you choose to ignore that gap and you say out of familiarity, I'm going to choose to ignore that, you have distanced yourself from Jesus. You've put a distance from him. You, you've moved him to the outskirts. You've put him over there and you've said, you know what, Jesus, he's not involved in everything. He's certainly not involved in this because I don't understand it. And you've distanced yourself from him to protect this, this image that you've created, your familiarity with him. The other thing is, is you deny what Jesus says and does. Oh, no, I, I don't believe that. I don't, I don't believe that for one second. I don't know what that means. I don't know how it's interpreted. But I'm telling you, it doesn't mean that. Because I know Jesus. I mean, I've grown up with him. I saw the flannel graphs. I, I, the veggie tales. I, have, I know all the songs. I mean, I saw the passion of the Christ. It doesn't accord with what I know about Jesus. So you deny it. And you distance yourself. And you distance Jesus from that you've created in your own mind from the Jesus that 
is revealed in the Bible. See, what happens is for faith to happen, faith means you lean in. Faith goes into the confusion. It says, okay, I'm confused here. This is what I thought, but this seems to be what's true. And so you seek clarity, and you, and you study, and you, and you read, and you spend some time with, with godly people, the people who love Jesus and, and know more than you do, and you, and you spend time with it, and you, and you, by faith, you press into the gap. Or, or you examine, and you go, okay, this is, this is what I thought, and, and this is what is true. How does my thinking need to change? Or is, is there some sin in my life that keeps me from seeing this more clearly? Or is there some theology that needs to be adjusted? You know, that theology that you've, you've never really liked and you've said, well, I don't, I don't believe that. I don't believe that. So, see, trusting, having faith, it doesn't mean you're always going to close the gap. You're not meant to close those gaps. Faith is always a part of the Christian life. You never graduate from faith. You never come to a place in your Christian life where you go, you know what, I've had all the empirical evidence I need. I'm just fine now. No more questions. No more doubts. I'm crystal clear about everything. You're never going to get there. And if you do, then you're totally deluded. I mean, you are. Because here's the reality. Your Christian life will never be lived, not for a moment, apart from faith. You never graduate out of faith. And there are times that you trust God's word, you trust the face of Jesus, you trust the work of Jesus in your life, the things you don't understand or the things you don't like or the things you wish you would change could change. And you say, you know what? I don't understand that or I don't like it or I wish I could change it. But I'm going to trust it. I'm going to believe it. I'm going to lean into that. That's faith. See, the brothers couldn't do that. They had a familiarity with Jesus. They didn't have faith in Jesus. That faith won't come till after the resurrection. There's this scene that always gets me. Paul records it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the first seven, eight verses. He says, this is the gospel I preached, and the gospel's this, and, and Jesus uh, came, and he lived, and he died, and he was buried, and he rose again, and he appeared to Peter and the apostles and then to 500 people. And you know what it says in there? It's like this little throwaway line, Paul says. And he, appeared, and he appeared to James. That gets me. Jesus goes and finds two specific people after the resurrection. One's Peter. Peter blown it. I mean, but the other one is James, his brother. Knows, knows. We don't have any details of that at all. So my divine imagination, my, no, my human imagination, trying to imagine the divine, thinks it's a sweet moment where Jesus, he doesn't show up and goes, I told you. Told you so. No, I don't think it's that. I think it's probably, I know. Can't imagine how hard it was to grow up with me. To believe what seemed impossible. But you saw me die and buried. And here I am, James. I didn't just come to be your brother. I came to be your savior. 
And James believes he becomes the leader of the church. His familiarity is replaced with faith. And there's two other things. Real quickly, I want to show you. There's the un, uh, unbelief of what I'd call popular opinion. Verse 10, but his brothers had gone up to the feast, and then he also went up. He didn't go up the same time and in the same way that they wanted him to. Not publicly, but privately. And the Jews, they were at the feast. They were looking for him. Where is he? Because the last time he was in Jerusalem, at the last feast of the Passover, he'd healed this man. He'd caused this, um, this, uh, this ruckus. And they'd come. They were mad because he healed on the Sabbath. And then they were madder because his answer to that was, by the way, I'm God. So they were waiting for him to show back up. And they were looking for him. And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he's a good man. Others said, no, he's, he's leading people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. This muttering or grumbling, it's an interesting word. It literally means to, you know, to murmur. It's what the Israelites did when they wandered in the wilderness. And this feast of booths is remembering the wandering in the wilderness. See, it's unbelief that comes with opinion. Everybody has an opinion. Well, I think he's a good man. Well, I don't know. I think he's, I think he's a rotten man. I, you know, whatever it is. But it's not your opinion of Jesus that matters. What do you believe? What, what are you sure of? What, what are you resolved in? Can your mind be changed? See, where is your belief grounded? That, that's what I'm asking you. Where is your belief grounded? Is it grounded in something greater than your own intellect? Is it grounded something, in something greater than your own preference? Something greater than, well, you know what? Jesus lines up with my values, and this makes the most sense to me. And See, that's opinion. That's not faith. Faith is trusting something greater than we are, more solid, unmoving, eternal, unchanging with the full recognition that, you know what, I'm a frail person. I'm a fickle person with full recognition of I have great need. Full recognition of our limitations and our weaknesses. Boy, I have a faith. I believe this, but boy, I don't believe it very good. I'm not very good at faith because I wasn't born with it. Neither were you. It's full recognition of our maturity to come. So you see, we mature in our faith. That's the trajectory. I think there's a lot of people that seem, they seem to mature out of their faith. They don't need it anymore. They become more enlightened or, or more sophisticated or, or just more secure. And I might argue that that wasn't ever faith to begin with. So you see, fa faith... Faith leads us as we mature to a deeper faith, a more understanding, a greater trust. In the other case, if you mature out of your faith, I mean, pride has replaced faith. You've gone from dependence to self-sufficiency. And it's what happens when we progress according to the world, living in sync with the world. not in sync with God's will. 
Well, look at this last one. It's the unbelief that comes from being threatened. So, verse 14, it's the middle of the feast. Jesus goes up in the temple and he begins to teach. Now, he didn't come there to do miracles like his brothers told him to. He comes up to teach. And the reality is every time Jesus teaches in John's gospel, the crowds get thinner. People get upset with him. In fact, we're going to see the crowd here say, you have a demon, which is essentially they're saying, you're crazy. You've imagined all these things. And then they say in verse 15, look at this. This is very important. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, the Jews here, these are the Jewish religious leaders, the Judean Jews who were the religious leaders. They marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he's never studied? He he wasn't in the school of Hillel. He didn't go, he he wasn't a follower of the rabbi Gamaliel. We don't know where he got this. We know it's true. We're marveling at it because it is is profound and insightful. He didn't get it from Gamaliel. He didn't get that from Hillel or any other rabbi we know. Where did he get this? So Jesus says, my teaching's not mine, but his who sent me. I came from heaven with it. And notice verse 17. I want to talk about it for a second. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he'll know whether the teaching's from God or whether I'm speaking in my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. In him there's no falsehood. And then he goes on. He's like, hey, Moses, you know, Moses is your guy. He gave you the law. Why do you want to kill me? People are like, well, nobody wants to kill you. And he says, yeah, you do. So I came here. I did one thing. I healed a man on the Sabbath. I made his whole body. I I, I put him all back together. He was an invalid for 38 years, and I put him back together. And and you, you will circumcise on the Sabbath because you're instructed by Moses to do this in the law, but Moses didn't actually give you the circumcision. That Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they were doing that long before Moses. But, you know, that's neither here nor there. And, and, if, and you had to be circumcised on a certain day, even if it was the Sabbath, and you had to do it. And, and it set you apart from God. It, it began the, the process of making you God's. And I took a man, I healed his whole body. And you want to kill me. And Jesus is saying to them, <clears throat> you don't understand the law. And the deal is they're threatened by Jesus. And this is why the world hates him. It's not because he's false. It's because he's true. So see, the light shines in the darkness. The darkness doesn't... People love the darkness. They don't love the light. So see, the law, they thought... Listen, they didn't honor God in how they followed the law. They used the law as this source of pride and self-sufficiency. See, God sent the law, Paul says in Romans chapter 7, it's holy, it's righteous, it's good, but the law can't save you. The law is a window into the holiness and perfection and beauty and majesty and the high standard of God, which is perfection. And the law is also a mirror that shows you yourself, that shows you you're not any of those things. 
So the law, it's holy and righteous and good, but it's only there to diagnose you. It's only there to bring you to a place of going, you know what? That's God. I'm not God. I can't even meet those standards. I can't even get close. I can pole vault, try to pole vault the Grand Canyon. I might get 10 feet across, but I'm still going to the bottom. Nobody gets across. It's to bring you to a place of absolute need and dependence. So then you're ready for a Savior. But the Jews were taking the law and they were going, you know what? Thanks for the law, God. We just needed to know what to do. <clears throat> and the circumcision thing, well, we know exactly what to do. So we'll do that on the eighth day and everything else is wrong. And it's the same thing we do today. We trust in that, you know, well, I've been to church. I've been there five times in a row. And I had my quiet time 21 days in a row last month. I have not listened to secular music in two years. That has to count for something. Right? And Jesus comes and says, no, I didn't count. You don't, you've totally missed it. So here's what they're doing. It's not because Jesus is untrue. They know he's true. They seek to undermine him so he can be disregarded. They want to cast him aside. So they say to him, oh yeah, well, so where's your training from? Where'd you get your degree? Can we see your transcripts? Who were your professors? And in doing this, what they're wanting to do, whether it's true or not, whether it's profound or not, whether it's insightful or not, they're looking for a reason to disregard it because they don't like it, because it threatens them. Because as long as we keep doing the law and everybody thinks we're doing the law, we get some glory here. We're esteemed. We're significant. We are somebody. Jesus says, you're nobody. You're so nobody, you don't even know you're nobody. And so they're threatened, and they're trying to dismiss him. Listen, they seek to undermine him. We do exactly the same thing. We can condescend. We hear the truth of Jesus, and we go, well, I don't know. I mean, that's nice. That was nice for them. But I mean, see, we think we're the high watermark of all intelligence and understanding. You know, I mean, we know better. I mean, I'm sure that was fine. It was so fine for the people in the first century. It's so fine for them. It's really cute. But, I mean... We know better. It's the 21st century. We have iPhones, for crying out loud. And we think we're the high watermark of intelligence and understanding. And we know it all. And we've evolved. And I'm, I'm, listen, all you got to do, go, get, go drive to Houston, get on a plane, fly to Cairo, land in Cairo, drive 20 minutes west to a place called Giza, and you'll see three pyramids that were built 7,000 years ago or such. They were there when Abraham went to Egypt. And you'll see what we in today's world can't replicate. It wasn't aliens. I mean, we're no high watermark. If Y2K happened, I mean, so we got it wrong. It happens 18 years later. If it happened today, you know what we'd do? We'd starve. We'd be all right for a week. We'd make a run on the grocery store, but not one, I doubt very many of us in here could grow food. And we'd sit there, die, starving, trying to, trying to charge our mobile phones that don't even work anymore. We don't know the high watermark of anything. We cannot get away with condescending and just saying, oh, well, those, you know, those first century people, I mean, they didn't know any better. Really? 
You know, the other way we do it is we corrupt it. We look for ways to discredit, to undermine, to find some rationale not to believe. We say same things like, well, listen, I, I, I don't know. That goes against human decency. That, that kind of rubs off on my, rubs the wrong way on my, on my sensibilities. S- sensible people don't think that way. Or we say, you know, it's archaic. I mean, times have changed. Or we say, you know what, it's, I don't know, that's just mysterious. Who, who can really understand all that? It is ways we seek to discredit the truth when we're confronted with the truth of who Jesus is. Or we ignore it. We say, you know what, it's not practical, it's not relevant. It's something that happens on Sunday mornings before a football game, but I mean, other than that, it has no place in my life. Or we revolt. You know, sometimes we get so threatened that we seek to destroy or to tear down or to kill or to put away. That's why Jesus will say at the very end, he'll say in verse 24, don't, don't judge by appearances. You need to judge rightly. See, we end up judging things with our own eyes, which means by our own standards or our own desires or, or what fits with us, you know. And, and what we really mean is we're judging things with our own eyes, our own perspective, our, our own desires right now, because all those things will change. I mean, my desires change, my standards might change, what fits with me might change. See, we're really, if we think about it, we are really a poor standard in and of ourselves for anything meaningful, because we all change. We are fickle. We are frail. Our circumstances change, our life events change, our place in family life changes. We need something greater, something eternal, something unchanging by which we ground our life. Trusting that it's true in want or in plenty, in blessing or what appears to be curse, in good times or bad. That's why a couple makes wedding vows at a wedding. It's a statement of faith. It's two people, imperfect people. They come together to make a lifelong commitment with as much as they know about each other, completely blinded by love. And they have absolutely no idea what's ahead. And yet they say, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, sickness and in health, till death do us part. And as a pastor, I stand there at every wedding and I think, I know you mean this as much as you can. I do. You're going to be so tested in this. Because you know, you're going to grow and you're going to change and life's going to happen and you're you're not going to be the people you are today 10 years from now. That's why you've grounded your marriage and your commitment on something greater than yourself. No idea what's ahead. With full confidence, everything's going to change. But a commitment that says, I'm not going anywhere. So let me ask you three questions. We'll be done. One is, where is, where is the unbelief in your life? Do you know it? I mean, so you're not born with faith. You're not born with it. You don't inherit it. It didn't come from your parents. We all have places of unbelief in our life, places that we 
struggle? I mean, do you know where the unbelief is in your life? Is it familiarity? Is it that you're threatened? You don't want to be offended? You, you've, got a, you've got your picture of Jesus, and man, nothing's going to change that. And is, is, is your unbelief in that every time you hear something that continues to challenge you about who Jesus is or what he desires or, or uh, this doctrine of who God is and how he works, is, I mean, does it, does it put you off because it, it rattles what you've crafted here about who he is? Maybe it's this unbelief of popular opinion. Maybe you're a person, you have a ton of opinions about Jesus. But opinions are not faith. You can talk about him all day long in the coffee shop and not be a believer. Second question, what's the ground of your faith? Is it yourself? Your intellect? Your own understanding? Or do you believe in Jesus, who is eternal, and God's word that is revealed and preserved? Is that where it's grounded? Third, who are you in sync with this morning? Are you in sync with the world? Are you in sync with God? Let me say this. If you're in sync with God, that's a miracle. Because it's not something you can do. We are by nature in sync with the world. To be in sync with God, that's a work that God has to do in our life. It's a miracle that happens to us that God works in our life to open our hearts, to give us an affection, a new disposition, a desire to love His Son, Jesus. God does that. And let me say this morning, if you find yourself in sync with the world and you don't think I'm in sync with God, because listen, there's no friction. I have no friction in the world. The world seems to love me. Then pray this morning, God, put me in sync with who you are. Put me in sync with an affection for your son, Jesus. Because I want to be more than just familiar. I want to have more than just an opinion. I want to be challenged, not threatened. Because I want to know you. If you're there this morning, that's the Spirit in your life working. It's the miracle of what the Spirit of God does in your life to bring you to the Son of God for salvation so you can enjoy the presence of God for eternity. Starting now. What do you believe? John wants you to believe in Jesus. If you would, bow with me. Father, I pray that you'd do what only you can do this morning. And if there's somebody here that